Buddhist Geeks. Seriously Buddhist. Seriously Geeky. Episode 57, Science as the Western Wisdom Tradition. Insight meditation teacher Wes Nisker shares with us his understanding of the similarities and differences amongst the Eastern and Western approaches to knowledge. We also explore the ideas of evolution, intelligent design, and deep time, particularly as they relate to the Dharma. This is part two of a two-part series. Do you love this show? Support Falling Fruit and advertise your product or service here. For more details, visit fallingfruit.tv sponsorship. Some of the scientists, some of the premier scientists who were, you know, like Einstein's a great example. He definitely talked in mystical terms. Do you think there's some scientists that are kind of picking up on this just via the work they're doing with science? Some of them, yeah. You know, they, some of them definitely, I think, in there, as they understand and research the way things are, the nature of things, they definitely arrive at a kind of, uh, you could call it a Buddhist perspective or a, a, a deep sense of being part or one with all things uh, rather than separate. Although I think there are a lot that, a lot of scientists who don't come to that understanding. Right. Goenka, one of my teachers, used to used to talk about some students of his who knew a famous physicist who watched in a atom smashing machine, watched the radical impermanence of particles, and they said that he was actually a very miserable man and very not a particularly uh, nice man. And Goenka would always say, "It is only through observing impermanence in ourselves, making it personal, that it really had a you know that it really became wisdom." I mean, you can understand impermanence on an intellectual level, but mm. unless it's integrated in some way, it is empty fact. It lies rusting in the cerebral cortex. It doesn't get into the system. Mm. But Einstein was, uh, he was the best. I mean, he, he said, and I think this is a pretty accurate quote, the true value of a human lies in the extent to which he has eliminated the self or he has transcended the concept of self. <laughs> wow. I think one of the really interesting things in, is that, I, you know, science is really a Western, the Western wisdom tradition, you know, and in the East, I, th- I feel like the, the globe was separated into the two hemispheres of the brain. And in Asia, they got the right hemisphere and they looked <laughs> inward and developed intuition and receptivity and a kind of holistic understanding of things. And in the West, we looked outside for understanding and started taking things apart to see how they worked. Mm. And now we have the corpus callosum connecting the two halves of the brain, you know, the global village. And so we we get the benefits of both of these incredible, really, sciences. That's what the Dalai Lama calls the Buddhist meditation, the science of mind. Right. Because, and and really, the techniques, there's a similar approach of both disciplines. Science wants to be as objective as possible. And that's really what, what we try to do when we develop mindfulness, is to be as objective as possible when the object being observed is ourselves. Hmm. You know, you're you're examining yourself with as much objectivity as you can muster. So they both have that, that approach. Do you find students who come to the Dharma and actually have more of that approach where they look at the teachings of mindfulness and actually do conduct it kind of like an experiment in that way? You know... <laughs> 
<laughs> I wish I could say yes, but uh, I think <laughs> I think most people, at least at the beginning, are very very much have to struggle through any kind of identity their deep identification because it's such a powerful programmed part of who we are hmm. is to identify with body and our thoughts and our emotions and they're mine and this is my drama and this, you know it's all about me basically. I mean that's how we live our lives and hmm. when we come to Dharma, we see that very clearly, mm. which can be very disturbing. I try to teach very much from the beginning in my retreats and in, and in my talks. I emphasize that, you know, we're really looking at the human condition and to really try to understand that, you know, our emotions have been around, emotions have been around for a hundred million years and that your anger, your sorrow, your fear is deeply embedded and not personal. It's something we all share. And I really, I, I have a couple mantras. One of them is, you are perfectly human. <laughs> or you could say, I'm only human. <laughs> mm. But I like it perfectly human, or it's perfectly natural. One of my favorite things to say to students is, you are not your fault. Because, you know, you didn't order this brain, you didn't order this body, you didn't order this particular level of consciousness. I mean, I think as a species, we're just... We're half asleep and half awake. We're starting to wake up and understand ourselves. It's a brand new game. We're just beginning. So looked at in that light, you can sort of be much more forgiving about not being able to be mindful every moment and, and just, you know, maybe relax a little bit behind the process. Hmm. And when you say that we're just starting to wake up, that kind of ties back into the original question about evolution. And we were talking before we started this recording about the intelligent design perspective and how you're, you're saying something along the lines that seems like there is some sort of intelligence in the process of evolution. I was wondering if you could say a little more about that, because it seemed like a just a fascinating idea. <laughs> Yes, it is. And, you know, you get accused of being a creationist if you get too wild about it. it. There's just so much mystery in who we are and why we get this consciousness that knows of itself and knows of the world. And uh, it, it, there's something behind it all or some kind of patterning in it that can create such complexity. And, uh, you know, your brain processes approximately 11 million bits of information a second. And there's so many phenomenal facts that makes you kind of stand back and say, now, wait a minute, is this just particles randomly bumping into each other that created this? And uh, it, it has no meaning beyond, you know, its own randomness and emptiness. It just feels to me like there's something else. Mm. I don't define it. I don't try to define it or try to understand. In some way, I think Dharma practice has brought me closer to the mystery by asking the questions and investigating myself. It hasn't given me any answers. It's really created in me a sense of awe and mystery, and that's a great gift. That's one of the greatest gifts of my Dharma practice is to really be in touch with that, to not take this show for granted or to look at it as some kind of ordinary, mundane existence. Because when you really are in the moment and you have beginner's mind, you really can't help but be in somewhat in awe. Mm. I don't know what else to say about that, but, you know... E.O. Wilson, the, the great biologist, says, you know, the chances of producing a human being through random chance in the universe would be like imagining a hurricane blowing through a junkyard and assembling a 747. <laughs> it just doesn't seem possible without something, you know, embedded in, in the process that's, I don't know, purposive, <laughs> meaningful. I don't know. We'll 
never understand it. We're, we're you know, the idea, uh, what I said about being half asleep and half awake as a species and looking at evolution, I'm hopeful in uh, I look at our lives uh, in deep time from a biological perspective and realize that, you know, we've got these big brains only about a million years ago mm. or so. Right. And uh, they didn't come with a good instruction manual. And that it was only 2,500 years ago, which is a blink of a blink of an eye in biological time. 2,500 years ago, we had Socrates and Lao Tzu and the Buddha. Mm -hmm. Our contemporaries are basically Darwin and Freud and Jung and Einstein and Hubble. And we're just now getting this whole new understanding of who we are in the scheme of things. And, you know, this, it's a radical shift that's taking place. And when you see it in that big perspective, it not only kind of brings a sense of forgiveness, but it also brings a sense of optimism or at least, uh, you know, some kind of hope that we will, we are waking up and that maybe we will come to our senses and uh, overcome some of our built-in instincts before we destroy ourselves, you know, our aggression and fear and hatred. The Dharma is here to, I think, help us do that. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com slash conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.